Welcome to episode 490 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, clients, friends, family, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup today, Melanie Toplinski, adjunct professor and senior fellow at American University, Washington College of Law, and a former Steptoe associate who worked with me and was just remarking on the amount of PTSD she suffered. Welcome, Melanie. (laughs) Great to be here. Richard Steenan, who is the founder and chief research analyst at the cybersecurity industry analysis firm IT Harvest and the author of Security Yearbook 2024. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much, Stuart. And Andrew Adams, who is a white-collar defense lawyer here at Steptoe and former acting deputy assistant AG and head of the Justice Department's Russia Sanctions Task Force. Andrew, good to have you. Great to be here as well. All right. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. We're going to jump into the discussion about U.S. concerns about the kind of hacking operations that the Chinese hacking group Volt Typhoon has been launching. Richard, why is this particular hacking campaign getting so much attention in Washington? Yeah, I think it steps outside the normal activity for Chinese hacking groups who have always been known for their cyber espionage for industrial purposes, right? They need to steal secrets and help their own economy. Kind of, you know, one of the classic ways that uh, espionage goes on. And that goes all the way back to Titan Rain in the early 2000s, right? And we've watched them and they've had some extremely successful attacks against the defense industrial base over the years, but stealing technology. Now, this group, originally identified by Microsoft way last May, is poking around in critical infrastructure, so energy systems, et cetera, in the Pacific Rim, and in particular in Guam. So the supposition is that if China is readying an attack against Taiwan, that disruption of critical systems in the region would be in their arsenal. And I think that's why the U.S. is paying so much attention to it. And the FBI, the Justice Department, evidently has taken action to shut down the network that they have of compromised systems. Yeah, and I I saw that. There's a lot of of chest thumping from the U.S. government about how they had gone in and disrupted the botnet by seizing all kinds of infrastructure. And it sounded, frankly, and Andrew probably knows this uh, pretty well, like what we always do when we're trying to go after a botnet. And I wondered, first, why would a botnet be considered an indication of particularly evil intent? So I'll Either Richard or Andrew, what, you're welcome to, to answer that. I just don't, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Sure. I, sure, Stuart. I think that on the face of the documents that DOJ made public and the, the public statements that they issued along with these warrant applications, there's not a lot to see to tie those dots together directly. In the affidavits themselves, they certainly make reference to prior Five Eyes investigations and identification ties to the CCP, and at a very high level, make reference to this 
Botnet being a vector for China-sponsored actors to approach, compromise, and potentially shut down critical infrastructure of various kinds. But you're right, the documents themselves don't give a lot of insight into exactly what kind of threat this particular botnet represented. But at the same time that this action was announced, there was a hearing up on the Hill. FBI and CISA were both there. Director Ray described with a little additional detail the malware that was at issue here, hiding some pre-operational reconnaissance and network exploitation, uh, malware, efforts to target communication systems, particularly energy systems, particularly. Jen Easterly made similar remarks, talking about working with some unnamed companies to guard against full typhoon and similar efforts to protect against attacks in the event of rising conflict with Taiwan. And then finally, some prior reports from the private sector, from Microsoft, for example, give a little more insight into this particular botnet being the vector for attacking communications networks between the U.S. and allies in Asia. Meaning they had actually done it or they thought this would be particularly useful because, you know, a botnet's sort of a multi-purpose device, it seems to me. The reporting that that I see from Microsoft and the, the statements that are collateral to the DOJ action certainly read to me like it had been accomplished in at least some. Okay. And of course, the, this looks a lot like the snake malware yes. uh, action from sort of mid of last year where they were more explicit about the particular touch points. This is an announcement that is certainly more measured in exactly how much it says about the, the action by DOJ, FBI, or any foreign partners. So one last, you know, kind of grumpy remark from me about this. How much good does it really do to say, wow, there's this global ability to send a denial of service attack at various parts of our networks? And we have gone out and knocked down every one of those global attack vectors that's in the United States. But surely you can still do a perfectly good DDoS attack from outside the United States, can't you? Absolutely. And some of the, the biggest DDoS attacks ever were mostly from Asia yeah. towards the United States, right? So yeah, piece of cake. Quite often, you know, if you go outside the FBI's jurisdiction, there will be international attempts to take down the command and control servers for the botnets in other countries. Right. So there, there would have been some effort to coordinate with people in Thailand and Germany, et yep. cetera, et cetera. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, although I didn't see a lot of that announcement. Melody, uh, your perspective on this, is this really as bad as the U.S. government is saying? And did they really do something effective about it? Well, as for whether it's something, let's do the second question first, as to whether it's something that's effective, we took it down. Of course, if you restart your machines and but your routers, then they're vulnerable once again to the same malware. So I'm not sure that it's effective in the long run, but it's certainly effective in the short term. And going to a question you asked earlier regarding uh, DOJ's use of this approach, you know, we did exactly the same thing as far as I can tell from looking at the DOJ documents and looking at the documents filed in the Southern District of Texas, which is where the FBI sought its warrant, we did exactly the same thing in 2021 with Hafnium when the Chinese infiltrated Microsoft's email software on servers. DOJ went in and basically for the first time then accessed the systems of downstream victims. 
And that's what they did here. I think it's notable mostly because it's a shift from what they used to do, right? We've been begging the federal government to help private sector deal with nation state actors for a long time. And I think here what we're seeing is that the government is pivoting from what it once did, which was not an enormous amount to help, right? They helped get bad guys into orange jumpsuits, but they didn't really help the private sector. And I think here what we're seeing is the FBI moving toward an effort to disrupt criminal activity. So I think that's a positive development. As for what I take from this, I was interested in something that Jen Easterly said in front of the House committee. Andrew mentioned that she testified last week. And, you know, she, she talked about the fact that the reason that the Chinese have been able to break into our critical infrastructure is, in fact, because we're essentially leaving the door open. And if you look at why the Chinese were able to do this exploit, they took advantage of the fact that there were a series of routers that were vulnerable because they were they had reached end of life status, which meant they were manufactured a number of years ago. Manufacturers aren't supporting them anymore with security patches or software updates to fix vulnerabilities. Her argument was, look, this isn't a sophisticated attack by the Chinese. This is just us leaving our door open. And she's saying, we need to stop doing that. And one of the things she put her finger on as a way to close the door was to say that software developers should no longer be insulated from responsibility for what she described as defects. And that's really interesting because she's really, I think, on the Hill building support for the administration's national cybersecurity strategy, which called for software. Right, language. which is going to say you need to support these things or tell people that they shouldn't be using them. But that's my guess is that at least half of these, maybe more than that, aren't being patched because the person who owns them doesn't know they have them. Yes. It has no plan for taking care of them because they are working as far as they can see. And, you know, they're working for them and for the Chinese. And if we really wanted to solve that problem, I don't think that yelling at the router manufacturers is going to solve the problem unless they have the ability to upgrade remotely without the participation of the owner of the machine, or unless the U.S. government just goes in and turns it off and then waits to see if somebody complains. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I, I think it'd be a lot better for CISA and Jen Easterly to spend time berating the utility and other critical infrastructure providers who are most of them tied to the government because they've been granted a monopoly. And make them liable for disruption to the power grid. If somebody dies during a disruption, make them actually liable for it. Because right now, as far as I understand, they're not, right? It's the act of God, not our fault. But if it's a cyber attack, it could be blamed on you. And that would be a way to get things to start changing in our critical infrastructure. Yeah, it's going to be a long time before that happens, is my guess. For sure. Okay. So sticking with China, Taiwan voted last week and there was a pretty good paper out by an Australian think tank about how the Chinese tried to interfere with the election. And there's a moral panic that's five years old now about foreign governments interfering with our elections. And it turns out there was a fair amount of effort at electoral interference it doesn't seem to have had much of an impact. So I kind of wonder, have we been kidding ourselves all this time about how dangerous it is? Is this just 
Hillary Clinton looking for an excuse for why she lost? Well, we're talking about Taiwan. I understand, and... but 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 <laughs> she's the one who said oh, this was a shocking electoral interference, and that's why I lost. That may not be yeah, true. I think the <laughs> entire intelligence community has supported her on that in front of Congress. So that's not not that, not for not for effectiveness. There. I I don't I don't think uh, they said they were particularly effective attacks. It, right. And it is, I mean, what we're doing is we're hacking a politic body, yeah. right? Which takes a lot of sophistication. And so every government is probably engaged in this. And certainly it's worked in Nigeria, worked in Somalia, worked in Indonesia's elections, where those hackers were hired by those governments to do that. Now, so let me stop because I, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. There's no doubt the Russians were enormously effective at hurting Hillary Clinton with hacking, but because they were hacking her emails or the emails of the DNC. Oh, that thing. That, okay. that, yeah, that yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. everybody would agree that was a remarkably effective stroke. The notion that misinformation and divisive posts are somehow going to interfere with the election is much more controversial. And I think you and I are on opposite sides of that controversy, evidently. Um, but in Taiwan, makes a lot of sense for China to attempt and engage in this kind of activity to get their person elected, raises some questions. And it's just like, you know, seeing the the warnings on the horizon, right? We have to look for similar types of things and just be on the watch for these types of things during our own elections coming up. Look for, for instance, one of the candidates to get up there and say that Xi is a uh, a wonderful, powerful dictator with one and a half billion people that he controls. Right. So if he's saying, sending messages that, hey, I'm the guy you want to win, even though it might be against, you know, China might not want the level of disruption to world politics that that would bring. Maybe he's convincing them that he'll be nice to them. And Yeah, but their, their candidate lost. Their, their candidate got, got creamed in the election, uh, rather yeah, yeah, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, so it says to me that, and they put a lot of effort into sending content that was going to be supportive of the uh, Kuomintang, and it didn't really work. And so, yes, we should, we should watch for that, but I'm guessing maybe we should, you know, chill about the likelihood that they're going to affect our election that way. There may be other things they'll do, but I'm just not seeing a reason to think that this is the most important thing in the campaign. And I don't think the Chinese are very good at it. They don't have the experience that Russia has. Right. And they'll be, you know, it, they'll interfere with each other trying to get mis mixed messages. But luckily, in social media itself, we've, we've grown up as a body politic and people are starting to distrust what they see, which is great, just in time <laughs> for deep fakes to come along. And we need everybody in the world to never trust anything they see on the internet. Uh, and we're getting God there. knows that's, that, that does look like it. I see that the head of NSA on his swan song said that 2024 is going to be the most secure election to date. It reminds me of the CISA director's statement that the election was secure in 2020, which got him fired. And I think when we talk about what's a secure election... There's no doubt that the ability to remotely influence the voting, to actually change the votes. The, the count. It, yeah, yeah, that's that's never been very plausible, and it's much less plausible. And in that regard, our election is secure most places other than Georgia, where, yeah. which insists on using these kind of dumb machines. But 
I'm not sure that's a prudent thing to say when there's all these other ways that the election could turn out to be insecure. Totally agree. I think it's prudent, or not prudent, but it's safe to say, right? Just as your swan song as you exit saying that we're super secure. Well, yeah, because nothing's networked and we use multiple different systems and there is no way to change votes because there's paper ballots everywhere and paper records. And so that's great. Really good. I mean, it would be nice if we came up with an Estonian-like secure online voting system because then it'd take a lot less time to tally the votes and ultimately, you know, would just be better and less expensive for everybody. But we're decades away from doing that. Yeah, it's very weird. I think it may have something to do with a few people thinking, yeah, I might get a benefit out of a less secure system or a system that is a little more wobbly than just counting uh, uh, votes by looking at them. Plus, there are companies that have invested heavily in saying, no, the coolest, newest stuff is something that looks like a laptop, which is, you know, unfortunately it's, nuts. It's, it's, Estonia is recognized it's all about phones, right? The country has, I don't know, 1.1 1. 1 million people and 1.3 million cell phones. And it's just amazing that you vote with your phone. And then they had to put in a little clause that allowed you to change your vote within 24 hours. Oh, my so God. That, that way, if your spouse is looking over your shoulder or your boss telling you how to vote, you can just vote the way they say, and then you go home and change change it to what ah. you want. Well, it's interesting. You know, the Taiwanese have the same concern about a remote voting. They don't allow it, basically, because right. they have so many people who are working and living on the mainland who would be subject to a fair amount of pressure to show that they were voting right. And they might not be able to just go home because, you know, their phone is still going to be tapped. If they want to vote, they have to fly to Taiwan to vote. Cool. Well, we just need one district somewhere to go digital and maybe Hawaii. So geographically separate or Alaska and just to demonstrate the benefit. You know, that's why we have 50 states. We get to try I, I'm against it. I, I, I think we can all afford to line up and vote and think of it as a, um, a civilian liturgy that we just show up. Now you're starting to sound reactionary. Come on, get with okay. it. I'm happy to sound reactionary. Be, be one of the kids. Get a phone. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. Iranian military hackers got sanctioned, Melanie for an attack on water facilities, which, again, sounds scarier than it was. It does. So the U.S. sanctioned six Iranian government officials who, as you said, were accused of perpetrating cyber attacks on water facilities. And what was interesting is that they were using technology made by an Israeli company known as Unitronics. So the hack highlights two important risks. The first is the risk of connecting critical infrastructure to the Internet, which we're all familiar with. And the second is how regional physical conflict can spill over into these global types of cyber attacks. So in this case, it was interesting. You had hackers who posed as a group called the Cyber Avengers, who were supposed to be anti-Israeli activists. But in fact, they were fronting for the Iranian military through the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, which a group is a group that we designated as a foreign terrorist organization back in 2019. So after the Israeli invasion in Gaza in October, the so-called Cyber Avengers exploited this Israeli software, the Unitronics software. And Unitronics, it's uh, useful to know, they're an Israeli company. They sell a program that's used not only by 
industrial water operators, but by lots of other critical infrastructures. So down the line, as we're thinking about the implications of this, I think we shouldn't be thinking just about the fact that the Unitronics software was used for this exploit. We need to be thinking about what else can be done with a hack that exploits this software because it's used in pipelines, chemical plants, refineries, et cetera. It had a default password that was like 11111. And the people who got compromised by this attack never changed the default password and then they left it on the internet. I mean, if you're that bad at cybersecurity, there's a, there's just no hope for you. There's no way in which we could have made a policy other than you know liability for the people who didn't bother to change the passwords. Even with that, I don't think that the Armenians managed to do much harm. So I suspect that you know with luck, all of those default passwords have been changed now, apart from a few people who really just shouldn't be in the business and. It'll be something else next time. But this does say, you know, there are 20 obvious things that you need to do to to secure your systems. And they're mostly things like change the password that they gave you. And that would be better than not. And it would make our infrastructure more secure than it is today. All right, let's move on. (laughs) I, I love this story. The EU has been announcing that, by God, they have produced the AI Act I did a um, a Cybertune cartoon in which somebody's standing at the front of the uh, room saying, you know, artificial intelligence is a very fast moving and dramatic field where it's really important to be first to market. And sometimes people cut corners to do that. And somebody raises their hand to say, is that why we need the EU's AI Act? And the guy at the front of the room says, no, but that's how we got the EU's AI Act. And that's the story that I'm seeing here this week. The EU has done deal after deal after deal to get their crippled AI act across the finish line. And they apparently have announced that they've done a few more deals without changing it just to make promises to people that aren't in the act, but which will be implemented nonetheless in order to buy off the opposition from places like France and Germany and Austria. Richard, do we have a coherent AI act out of Europe, or is this just, you know, an ugly mess of pottage? The latter. And, you know, it really raises questions about corruption when you can pass a, you know, firm regulation and then have essentially side letters that, eh, we're not going to enforce that medical devices in Germany, whatever they had planned for those in the first place. But I am very surprised that even though Switzerland is not part of the EU, if you think back to the person who envisioned all of cyber AI, William Gibson, yeah. he also, along with that, envisioned the cyber AI police force that would enforce and cr- try and cripple AIs from being too strong or something. And they were based out of Switzerland. So they were like the worldwide enforcers. And, they, and this act does establish, you know, it's not passed yet, of course, but it does establish yet another enforcement agency. And is this going to be like the GDPR enforcement group, which is, I don't know, 150 attorneys that just go around and find Facebooks that they can prosecute? Like GDPR, it's going to be targeted after big American tech firms protectively, you know, to support European competitors. So once again, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, now OpenAI, 
will be the subjects of their fines that they apply if they can. That, of course, is going to be extremely detrimental to everybody in Europe who wants to get ahead using AI. AI is the most, in my opinion, the most productive addition to our suite of things we can do since the internet. And if you're barred from using it because OpenAI happens to violate one of these new regulations, you're going to be at a just fighting for your career and your life and your livelihood against everybody who has free access to it. So what's interesting is I think it's hard not to have your data in Europe at some point, and that gives them a hook into all your data governance rules. It's less hard to say to people on the mainland of Europe, you know, I'm not going to sell you my latest AI because I'm not sure whether it will be acceptable to the 150 lawyers that you're about to hire. And so why don't those of you in industry who want this buy it in the United States, use it in the United States, buy it in Brazil, use it in Brazil. And the people who want to use it in Europe, they can lobby to make sure that they get approval before they start using it. It shouldn't take more than five years. It's a crazy outcome for Europe. But they think that because GDPR worked, that this will work too. I was struck by a statistic I saw recently talking about AI and Apple's App Store. Apple's sales in the EU are 5% of their gross sales, which means that they, they can afford, they won't want to, but they can afford to either come late or not at all to Europe on things that they really want to get out in a hurry. And I think that's almost certainly true for AI sales as well. So it may well be that this is finally the point at which the so-called Brussels effect kind of completely collapses. That's that's my guess and, frankly, my hope. <laughs> and I don't know if it'll have that desired outcome. You know, and first of all, it's not a, it doesn't appear to be an overarching AI regulation, right? It's just usage of it kind of stuff. It's not like some people proposed here in the U.S. that we put a freeze on all new learning models. No, but it's so incoherent. It's so broadly yeah. written in some places. Then they say, well, we don't really mean that. You can't tell when you're in violation, which means that you're in violation if you haven't taken the commissioners to yeah. lunch recently. They you know, Medical devices are exempt, but they're not defined. Facial recognition is bad or sometimes it's good. Risky uh, foundation models can't be produced, but maybe they aren't so risky. We don't know. It's just going to be a mess. And then they say, and but you should have known, so we're going to charge you 10% of your right. global sales, which is more yeah, than your entire yeah. European sales. That's right. That's right. And, you know, AI is it's way too early to know how to regulate it. This is the very, very beginnings of something that, yes, is going to be very, very disruptive, but we don't know how. You know, we just have no idea what it's going to do to the economies of the world and what opportunities are available, and you just can't regulate it yet. Yep. You don't know, but there's no harm done yet. Okay. I want to pick up this story because we haven't heard from Andrew recently yet. The Justice Department figured out who did the mystery hack on the day that FTX went under. $400 million was stolen. It sounded like a big, sophisticated, everybody thought, oh, it's an insider. He, you know, is waiting for the things to go bad. And they took $400 million worth of cryptocurrency. 
turns out that it was a much less exciting crime. That's right. This sort of picks up on the theme of if you can't stop this kind of activity, then maybe you should get out of the game entirely. (laughs) So last week, the DOJ actually didn't announce, but they unsealed an indictment quietly, revealing some arrests in this lucrative SIM swap scheme involving $400 million pulled from FTX accounts. The SIM swap, of course, it's a relatively low-tech form of identity theft. Bad actors convince your phone company to port a victim's SIM over to a device controlled by the bad guys, gives them the ability to overcome basic two- or multi-factor authentication protections on personal accounts. This, it happens with increasing frequency. It's actually the theft typology, the hacking typology that was blamed for the, the recent SEC Twitter account or X account that led to the false and premature announcement of the Bitcoin ETF. But this one is news for exactly the reason you say. Although the indictment itself doesn't mention FTX at all, from the timing and the amount, and apparently from some insiders to the investigation who spoke to Bloomberg, it looks clear that this is in fact the FTX money that moved through. But that said, it doesn't actually tie the indicted defendants to the hack itself, or at least without some assistance from unnamed co-conspirators. So there's conspiracy theories kicking around about insiders or folks in the government of the Bahamas orchestrating this may not be quite as immediately dispelled. Oh, okay. The named defendants clearly played a critical role in stealing the information, transferring the information to other bad actors, basically running the SIM swap portion of the event. This is sort of what Scattered Spider did. These are a bunch of kids who are really good at social engineering who broke into a lot of companies, but weren't necessarily the world's gift to uh, hacking. They just were really good at the social engineering, and that's all they needed to be for a lot of these SIM swaps. So maybe that's what happened. It could have been anybody. Then you're right. It could be somebody else who was providing some of the hacking back end. Yeah, I think if you look at the specific paragraphs of the indictment that get into the hack itself, it stops talking about these defendants and talks about some unnamed co-conspirators. I guess the other takeaway here is companies that are still using an SMS-based two-factor authentication, it's time to evolve. Yeah. So did they get the money or is the money gone? Well, the money left FTX, but whether these particular defendants got the money... Oh, the Justice Department has not gotten back the $400 million. No, not not as announced here, for sure. Whether it got commingled and seized in some of the other actions that took place in connection with the actual FTX investigation, also unclear here. But the forfeiture allegations in this particular indictment don't say one way or the okay. other. So, Richard, Microsoft has now up dated its Midnight Blizzard blog post talking about an attack, which was a Russian attack. And the more they update it, the angrier people seem to get at them. Yeah. My initial reaction was the initial news that they that email accounts of their top executives had been hacked. They dumped it on a Friday night, you know, which is classic, hide it, hope that nobody notices kind of stuff. Although, to be fair, it was the beginning of the SEC requirement that you provide notice within four days. 
So I can understand why somebody would say, we just got to get it out. It's Friday. It's bad. But I think you're right. People came to the conclusion that they were hiding it. And yeah. probably they were. And now they trickle it out. I, I don't blame them for that, right? You, you know, it's part of handling these incidents. But now they're trickling out that, oh, guess what? There were other, you know, our customers' email accounts were also targeted and probably breached. And that's where, you know, Alex Stamos chimes in and criticizes them heavily. This is much broader than just our data. And then the description of how it happened seems to obviate their blame for just doing a bad job and then turning around and using it as an opportunity to upsell people. <laughs> There's security stuff. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. That, that's how we got in this situation where practically, you know, most of the world's infrastructure, communication infrastructure, email, storage, and soon compute is all at Microsoft, right? And Microsoft's the one who created the cybersecurity industry, right? By taking over the PC world and the server world. So now all of our compute and all of our desktops were on the same operating system with the same vulnerabilities. And that created the virus world and the Trojans that earned money and cybercrime and led to what we have today, which is a vibrant industry of cybersecurity defenders against the cyber criminals who grew up in those days. Yeah, although I mean, it's not like they invented the cloud. And that's the, no. these, are, these are cloud. They're trying problems. to take it over, yeah. right? They, you know, Amazon invented the cloud as we know it today and owns 80% of the business. So Microsoft's a third run also ran, soon to be second, and you know they would like to own it all. And they're, you know, they moved Active Directory into their cloud, which is one of the attack vectors that was exploited here to get access to the email. Yeah. So, well, Alex has been on the, on the show and he always speaks his mind and he really ripped them a new one on this. And with some justice, Microsoft is really going to have to figure out how to do a better job than to say all of our customers have been pwned, but that's because they didn't buy all of our security extras and you can avoid their fate by buying a whole bunch of tail fins that we have on offer for security. That's not a way to make your customers love you. Okay, the state privacy law is really going through an interesting time. There are a lot of state privacy laws now, at least a dozen. And they all look kind of similar, but there is a bitter fight over exactly what they're gonna say. And Melanie, how is this playing out in state legislatures? Sure. So. It's playing out. There are a couple of legislatures where we see very relatively weak bills, bills that are industry driven, particularly Virginia's law, which was partially written by Amazon and has become a favorite model for legislation. What's happened is that federal privacy legislation is stalled. So the privacy battleground has really moved to the states and tech companies have seized on an opportunity to push for widespread adoption of essentially standardized industry friendly state privacy laws. And that's what the Virginia bill is seeking to do, to become that standard law. There are 44 states that have looked at this issue since 2018. We have, as you said, 13 states with privacy laws and a dozen more negotiating these bills. So industry has a very intense and highly organized campaign in this space. And the idea is industry saying, look, having extensive data protection stifles innovation. And when privacy rules vary from state to state, that raises our compliance costs. So we want to get in place uh, industry-friendly rules. And they're looking to achieve a national standard for this. Kind of goes back to what Richard said before, right? 
if you have a model for an online election in one state, you can get it passed everywhere. That's the idea here. So tech companies are pushing for that kind of a national standard. So when you say industry friendly, one thing that clearly is important to industry that I have some sympathy for is not having private rights of action. Because private rights of action usually come with standardized $1,000 per violation damages clauses, which brings out all of the class action lawyers and may or may not have some relationship to what's an important privacy violation. What else are the more aggressive states doing that that Virginia didn't do? Sure. So strong data minimization language, right? This kind of language limits how much information companies can keep on hand, opt-ins. So for example, tech companies would prefer that consumers were not allowed to opt into data protections in most cases, and they're looking for narrow definitions. So for example, when you define a data sale, tech companies would prefer that that language be narrow and not cover as much. And folks who are privacy protective would prefer the opposite. Basically, the stronger laws allow individuals more control over how companies handle data and give regulators more power to protect consumers. Okay. So here's a development in privacy that I think a lot of people don't know or may have initial reactions to that are wrong. The Consumer Finance Protection Board has proposed some data rules. Schneier has written about it very favorably. I think it's worth studying because it's not really about privacy exactly. It's about building a completely different structure for handling data that is designed to knock out the advantages of the existing incumbents, so that the big data companies, uh, the credit reporting companies. And it is a it's an effort, as I read it, to create an entirely different industry from scratch by writing rules about who has to hold data, how and how they have to make it available to people and the APIs they have to build. It is, you know, it sounds like a pretty good idea. It's not going to particularly restrict trade in data. It's actually going to have more trade in data to more people. But the goal is to have that be trade in data that is particularly relevant and it isn't likely to leak. But I wonder, you know, and you guys may not have followed this, but I'm a little worried that it is more ambitious than a regulator should be and that it could end up collapsing into something that nobody really anticipated. I haven't been following it, but it does remind me of HIPAA, which was supposed to encourage the portability of health information so that you could go to any doctor and they'd immediately be able to pull up your record and yep. know your stuff. And now and here we are 20 years later and you still have to get a new doctor. You have to tell them all the prescription meds you're yeah. on. And it's like, don't you know that? I mean, everybody has my data except the guys who actually need it. <laughs> so I'm afraid that while I totally support the idea of breaking the TransUnion, Equifax hold uh, people's ability to get credit. Yeah, I don't see building it from scratch as going to be effective. Well, maybe we'll get somebody on to dive deep into yeah. it because I feel a Schneider, little uneasy about Schneider it. Yeah. yeah, we should get Schneider on. He's, he's a smart guy and he's been on before. He likes the idea. I just, you know, if it works, it will work in other contexts too. And maybe it'll be a good thing that will because the big worry is that privacy regulation 
is going to mean that there's no longer going to be a data broker industry. There's just going to be Facebook and Google and maybe Amazon, and they'll have all the data. And that will be another way to lock in their market advantage. And this is an effort to overcome that while still having privacy. Great idea, tricky to actually implement. In the meantime, we're going to end up having 50 state privacy laws that... Well, know, no, but probably more like three or four that are variants on okay. a, a, a okay. continuum. All right. All right. Uh, yeah. Does that mean you need 50 attorneys in order to defend yourself? Well, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> okay. Here's one I hope everybody can agree on. Joshua Schulte is going to jail for 40 years. Andrew, is this as obviously the right answer as as it sounds like? Yes. Next question. (laughs) No, this one I think was not a surprise in terms of the sentence. It was a long road to to get here for DOJ. There's been litigation and prosecutions with Schulte going back years at this point. Well, Uh, he gave away a lot of CIA weapons, cyber weapons and attack vectors and other things. And apparently... For no other reason than that he didn't like his boss. It's an amazing human resource problem gone deeply, deeply wrong. The problem, I think, is that the parallels between this case and some of the public reporting on missteps, missed opportunities in compliance and personnel management in other agencies and other departments is striking. It reads a lot like the Discord leaks involving Jack Teixeira in, in many ways that just highlight the problems there. But at the end of the day, Schulte got, I think the breakdown is 30 years for the theft and leaks. And the theft and leaks are massive. And Deputy Director Cohen is out explaining exactly how massive they are. And it comes on top of an 80-month sentence for child pornography that is as as heinous as those cases go. So I think no surprise to anybody that 40 years was the right answer. Okay, so here's some good news. Ransomware payments are down. Fewer people are paying when they get the ransomware notice than used to. The amount that they're paying is up a little, depending on how you measure it. But fewer people are actually paying. Melanie, this does sound like good news. Does it mean that ransomware is going to slowly disappear? No. No. (laughs) It means ransomware is changing. So it is true. The number of ransomware victims paying ransoms has dropped. They tell us to a record low of 29% in the final quarter of 2023. So this comes from, first of all, it's interesting to see where it comes from, from a ransomware negotiating firm, negotiation firm called Coveware. Coveware, by the way, says dollar amounts have dropped as well. But I've seen other things that suggest that that may not be true. But why are ransomware payments dropping? Well, there are lots of possible reasons and we don't know which one's true. It could be that organizations aren't trusting cyber criminals not to publish their stolen data after a ransom is paid, so they're not paying anymore. Could be because there's been legal pressure in some regions where paying ransom is illegal. It could be because of our own sanctions, right? OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls in the United States, has an advisory in which they strongly discouraged payment of ransom in the United States and also put in place civil penalties for ransomware victims that run afoul of the sanctions regime. So when they pay a ransom to a sanctioned entity, they could potentially be subject to civil penalties, or if they did it willfully, they could even be subject 
to criminal penalties. So any of those things could account for it dropping. What's interesting, of course, is that there is a very active debate over whether or not to ban or not to ban ransomware payments in this space. And we can talk about that more. Yeah. And Coveware, of course, does not want that to happen because they can't negotiate if payments are illegal. I did not see in there my favorite solution to this problem, which is to say, yeah, you can pay it. It's just that we're going to tax you as much as you paid the ransomware artists. And so take that into account when you negotiate what you're going to pay them because it's going to be very expensive. And I don't know why we wouldn't have a rule like that. It ought to raise the price of providing ransom payments in a way that doesn't actually benefit the criminals. And so you're taking money away from the criminals and at the same time, discouraging payment of uh, large ransom amounts. Seems like a good idea. Interesting. One of the concerns is, you know, you've got critical infrastructure and they're going to pay because at the end of the day, if your choice is let people die or pay, you're going to pay. Yeah, exactly. But they're not going to pay a billion dollars. So you're negotiating over the price. And if they have to consider in that price what they're going to have to pay the government when they're done, you know, I think they'll pay less. And you could even have a, you know, you'd say, we're going to tax you and then we'll give you an exemption if it turns out you're a small business or you had good security and the ransomware guys got through despite your good security. So you can ask for some of it back, but you're going to pay it first. And that will influence the negotiations in in ways that are probably good for compliance. Reimbursable by insurance? Uh, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay, let's see. Um, More tech regulation. Two ideas that are kicking around the FCC. This was a surprise to me. I, I had not seen this. Apparently, the TCPA, which is a consumer protection law for telecommunications, has actually an existing provision that says that the FCC can declare that artificial voices can't be used without a consumer's consent to make calls to them. So you can't call up with an artificial voice. This was well before AI voice came along. But the FCC is now talking about repurposing that provision to say anytime you use AI-generated voices in a robocall, it's illegal. And that's not quite what the law was written for. But, you know, my first thought is, yeah, why not? I'm not sure I I see an enormous social value in AI-generated robocalls. Plenty. A a call tree for a school when the, you know, schools close. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, you're right. You could record a message, but you might well want to send it by text, and then it's going to be AI-generated voice. Yeah, you're right. And automated. So it's... The situation can be described. So it's always some good reason. I've received calls from obvious AIs, and it's really, really cool when it happens. They talk just fast enough so you can't interrupt. Yes. And then they get to your yes, and then immediately connect you to a human. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. And Amazon is about to take on a lot of responsibility for the products it sells that it doesn't make which is, you know, a majority of the products that it sells. And the Consumer Protection Commission has had a case wending its way up through the administrative law judges in which the staff of the commission is saying, you know, really, Amazon is such a big distributor 
They ought to be responsible for the safety of the products that they sell. And Amazon is saying, no, no, we're just a platform for other people who want to sell stuff. But, you know, we've all been on Amazon. You can't tell whether Amazon is selling it to you or somebody else is without working pretty hard. And so my bet is the commission is going to say, you know, they're liable for the safety of the products that other people sell on their platform, which is going to change what they sell, is my guess. Is Walmart? Similarly responsible? I don't know. You know, you could certainly make the argument that at this point they are or should be. They've imitated Amazon pretty effectively on a much smaller scale. But I think this is happening distributor by distributor. So Amazon got a lot of regulatory attention. Walmart, for once, is not the villain in the public press. So it'll be a while before they get picked up. But they also probably sell a lot less third-party stuff because if you're a third-party seller, you want to go to the place where you can sell most and where the number of buyers is greatest, and that's clearly going to be Amazon. All right, just a couple of quick hits, and then we will be done. One more Amazon story. They tried to buy iRobot, and practically all the uh, regulators decided that that was okay, that was different enough from their business that it was okay. But the Europeans, the EU said, no, we want to give this a hard look. And finally, Amazon gave up. They paid almost $100 million to iRobot as a breakup fee. And everyone believes that iRobot will be out of business in a year. So I'm not sure that's a victory for competition. But then European anti-competition scrutiny is never really about competition. It's about who do they want to win the market in the long run. Melanie, this is a sad story. David Kahn, who we all learned cryptography from and who has been around forever, died at the age of 93. Yeah, so this was sad news for crypto geeks like you and me. Khan was known for having written a book called The Codebreakers. It was a 1,000-page book about the history of secret communication. And many of us grew up on this book. It was published in 67. And he was basically, Khan was credited with creating an entirely new field, the history of signals intelligence. Not everyone was happy yeah. with this when it happened. Did you have, <laughs> they hated it, didn't they? Yes. DOD said it wouldn't be in the national interest to publish the book. But if you're interested, they ended up coming around. They now have at the National Cryptologic Museum in Fort Meade, Maryland. It is now home to his collection of books and artifacts, including the 1806 letter from Napoleon asking his son to correspond in code. So go visit. Excellent. Yes, it's a fun museum. Yeah. It's definitely worth Fantastic. going. If you're, if you're driving toward Washington from New York, just pull off between Baltimore and Washington and visit the museum. Definitely worth doing. Did you see the Washington Post article? Because it had a couple of pictures of him. And he is remarkably somebody who got better looking the older he got. I was I was astonished. He had this kind of dreamy look when he first was pictured. But by the end, he looked pretty good for 80 or 85 or whatever he was when they, when they took that picture. I aspire to that. I think so. <laughs> All right. We are going to have a new uh, head of Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, General Nakasone, has stepped down. And Tim Hawk, an Air Force general, has stepped in to take over. The only thing that we know about him is how to pronounce his name. Actually, I've met him. He's a very pleasant guy, as was Nakasone. Uh, they're surprisingly easy to talk to. So we'll see. He's going to be tossed into the maelstrom, and we can hope he 
survives. And speaking of surviving, I was just astonished by this Wall Street Journal article. Practically everybody knows something about 23andMe, and most of us have a relative who has already used 23andMe to get their DNA tested. And it had everything. It had a technology lead. It had lots of subscribers. It had all this DNA data that nobody else had. It was worth $6 billion. It's now worth pretty much nothing because they never figured out how to turn that into revenue. Their ideas for turning it into revenue were all about coming up with new drugs and treatments. And that turns out to be something where $6 billion isn't enough. And there's a real doubt that they'll make it or they certainly will have to dramatically pull in their horns. So it's a rare story about a tech unicorn that basically collapsed despite having apparently gotten past the worst of the startup cycle. So I'm sort of sorry to see this happen to them, but it just goes to show you can have everything that Silicon Valley values and still not have a business. And it also points out how bad an idea it is to do a reverse merger with a SPAC. Oh, yeah, you're right. As Keith Alexander discovered. <laughs> yeah, the fact that the people who are willing to do business with you are SPACs should tell you there's something wrong with your business model. I yep. think that's the answer. I think so. Okay, Richard, thank you so much. Melanie, Andrew, it was a pleasure to have you on. For our listeners, send us questions, reviews. We are at cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. This has been episode 490 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. this as obviously the right answer as, as it sounds like? Yes. Next question. <laughs>